Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Please be seated. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Stonehouse. Glad to have you this morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse, and we are uh, walking through some of the book of Luke, uh, not the entirety of it, but um, parts here and there as we are looking at the uh, sections of Luke that are unique to Luke in his gospel. And so this week we come into Luke chapter 14 and look at this parable, uh, this situation with Jesus at a meal, and uh, have an opportunity to talk about something that is prevalent in all of Scripture and something that is very poignant for our lives, and that is the comparison and contrast of pride and humility um, and the reality of our hearts, uh, which are uh, by default and in normal human experience uh, uh, proud and, and, and posturing, and uh, how that is contrary to the gospel. Um, that Jesus is sharing, especially with this group of people as he's sitting uh, to dine at the house um, of a ruler. Um, and so if you've had much experience in, um, in anything regarding uh, being somebody who seeks to be good at something, uh, you understand the, uh, the place where sometimes you might put yourself forward as an expert and find that, in fact, somebody is better than you and uh, end up in a place where you are humbled in that situation. And so Jesus kind of pulls that, uh, that uh, picture into view here in regards to this, this meal and, and helps us to see how, how, how apt we are uh, to seek to make ourselves uh, better than we might actually be. Uh, it's a humbling thing to look at. It's, it's uh, a convicting thing to look at. Um, but I believe in the end when we see the, the totality of these two stories kind of mashed together and what Jesus is saying through them, we get a, a, a glorious picture of God. Uh, we get a glorious picture of, of who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ. And that picture shows us the fullness of the gospel, which is really the only possible way for our hearts to be humbled anyway, because we're not here to, to, to just do some practices that are going to turn us into, into humble people. Uh, we're here to evaluate our hearts and to see ourselves as we truly are and to realize, wow, um, I am not by my own right and by my own deeds a, a person who would be considered humble. But... Uh, the fact that God has loved me and in Christ has pursued me. Uh, there is hope for me to move slowly and gradually and uh, hopefully somewhat consistently from the pride that is typical for me um, more toward the humility that is typical of Jesus Christ. I want to pray and then we're going to dig in and uh, read through these verses again and uh, just uh, seek Jesus. So, Father, we thank you um, for the opportunity to be in this place. Um, 
we have to admit uh, that it, it is hard uh, often to, uh, to think rightly about ourselves in, in view of uh, your holiness and our sinfulness. It's, it's hard because of the messages of the world. It's hard because of the wiring of our sinful nature. Um, it's hard because of uh, some of the self-speak that we have, some of our own um, conversations that are just internal. Uh, Maybe may even for some of us, the, the places or the ways in which we were raised, um, it's hard for us to think uh, rightly about ourselves, to really see ourselves um, and be humble. Um, and we, we do thank you that you confront that, um, but you don't confront it in, uh, in a way that is... Um, harsh and punitive, but rather you, you confront it in a way that is, is gracious and kind. Um, primarily, you, can, you confront it in the way that Jesus came um, by showing us ultimate humility, uh, that the one who was actually God uh, became a man and lived among us um, and faced all of the difficulties and the struggles that we face and also more uh, because he was betrayed and murdered and left for dead. Uh, but we know because he was God, he rose from the dead. Uh, that Christ today is ascended and glorious um, because he is God, yes, and because he is God who became man as well. That because of his willingness to serve and to humble himself, he has been elevated to a place that nobody else will ever be elevated to. Um, and so that same pattern of life is given to us that we might live in fullness, uh, live in the fullness of seeing ourselves rightly and being humbled. Um, and so God, help our proud hearts today. Um, we might be on a wide spectrum of view in regards to our proud hearts. Um, maybe we don't think we're proud at all, um, or maybe we're just starting to realize it, or maybe we've seen it so much so that we're actually really sad about it. Uh, wherever we are on that spectrum, God, we just pray that you'd have grace and mercy toward us and on us today, and that you would move us into a good view of who we are and who you are. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to read just the first part of this again. We'll jump in, and then we're going to read the second part of it, and we'll dig into that a little bit as well. We always like to reread what we're reading. Uh, we just we love to be more and more familiar with the scriptures and let them wash over our hearts and uh, permeate our minds. So here's uh, Luke 14, 7 through 11. It says this, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, so Jesus is telling the story to a group of people who were invited to uh, dine. Uh, actually, Luke 14, 1 points to this Truth, it just says, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So there was a group of people that were invited to this meal. Jesus was invited to this meal as well, um, sitting in the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. And uh, when he was there, as verse 7 gives us kind of a hint on this, Jesus is watching people. Right, So Jesus is observing the environment, and as he's observing the environment, he's realizing that people intentionally try to like figure out where the more honored seats are, and then they go sit in them. Okay, So he's noticing a group dynamic 
Um, he's, he's observing a human reality, and he begins to speak to that reality. And so he just simply tells them, listen, don't choose the, the most honored seat, right? It's, it's a very practical example, right? And we've all been to weddings. We've all gone to dinners. We've all been at banquets and different things where sometimes there's name placards, right? And so you know, all right, I know where to sit, right? I sit at the, next to so-and-so because my name's right there. But then we also have the scenarios where we don't have the guidance of the name placards, and that's like that awkward, you know? And so Jesus is just pointing out, listen, at that type of a meal, maybe in ancient uh, Jerusalem they didn't do name placards, so um, in, at that time of a meal scenario, don't go sit at the head table because you have no idea who else has been invited to the meal, right? And so it's a, just a really practical example of what's going on, and it poignantly leads us to think about how we often position ourselves through comparison to others, right? We evaluate the scenario, we think about who's present, who's not, who am I compared to who's there, and then we choose a seat, right? And that's just the practical situation that Jesus is giving us here. We choose a seat based on our evaluation of the company that we're in. We look around and we say, well, you know, here I am with my blah, blah, blah degree, and as I observe the room, he didn't get that one, she didn't get that, he didn't, he went to school, he didn't, I must... I must be at this table. This might, must be the spot for me. We often will evaluate the scenario based on our comparison with others. This happens in a lot of places, in a lot of situations in our lives. And C.S. Lewis speaks to this reality very clearly. He just says that pride is essentially competitive. Right? This is in his chapter on the greatest sin, which is a chapter all about pride. And he says pride is essentially competitive. It is by its very nature competitive. He says pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are, being prou are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If, anyone, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Now, this pride in us that is comparative... Right, is a result of a heart that is just like our first parents' hearts and every human that has uh, descended from our first parents' hearts. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a deep-rooted sin that shows that we have the feeling that there's some kind of lack in us that needs to be covered. Okay? The story of Adam and Eve and their rebellion in the garden, immediately their feeling was of shame, right? They took the fruit, their eyes were opened, they participated in the sinful rebellion of the devil, and they realized, I am not by myself, right? So they were naked. I am not by myself fit to stand before God. I've got to do something to better ready myself to be before the eyes of him who sees everything. This is kind of the deep-rooted essence of pride, that we feel in us a lack of some kind of worthiness, and so we, we push ourselves outward and upward to try to attain something that would say, you're worthy, right? 
And often that worthiness is brought to light, it's exposed when it's put next to the worthiness of another. Right? So for me, an example I just said a minute ago, if you try to be the best at something, you realize somebody else is better, right? Like, so I, I grew up in Minnesota playing hockey. I live now in Florida and I play hockey. Okay? My ego says, therefore, I must be the best. <laughs> Because Minnesota is the state of hockey, right? Toddlers can skate better than most adults in Florida. It's just the way of the world. And so the natural conclusion then is I, I must be better. I must be the best. And so I recently signed up and got back into a league for the first time in years. And I sat down in the league and I began comparing myself, right? I sat down in the locker room and I started measuring, right? And I, I, you can't really tell when guys put on their gear who's the good ones, but I already started to do it, right? I'm starting to measure just as sitting and putting on gear and like fitness and like, you know, how people, it's just absolutely insane, right? And then we get on the ice and I'm thinking like, I, I'm going to show them the Minnesota boy. And I realized very quickly, I am nowhere near the top of this team, that there are in fact several people that are way better than me. So then what I do, and this is the, just the depth of my desire for comparison, once I get back to the locker room, having realized that so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so are better than me, I, began, I begin to try to figure out where they're from. Because if they grew up playing hockey in Florida, then I am an absolute disgrace to the name of the sport, right? And to my own state, right? So I'm, I'm figuring out, I'm looking at gear, like bags, right? To see where they played. As long as it's north of the Mason-Dixon line, I'm okay and I'm in the clearing. But if it's anywhere south, I'm screwed and exposed and I'm a fraud, right? And so this one guy who was the best on his bag is the map of South Carolina. I'm like, no! My worth is gone right? Because no South Carolinian can possibly be better at hockey than me. I'm from Minnesota. All this time, Jesus is just beckoning me to enjoy the exercise, and all I can do is compare myself to others. This is the essence of pride. If I'm not that, if I'm exposed as lesser than, then there is no worthiness in me, right? There is no worthiness in me, and this is a terrifying proposition to us that you aren't worthy right that terrifies you it terrifies you when you go get a new job it terrifies you when you go to try to talk to the girl at the bar right it terrifies you when you walk into that new classroom it terrifies you when you move into that neighborhood that you are not worthy or that you may be exposed for your unworthiness. It's a terrifying prospect. And so, so much of the pride that comes in our lives is a reaction of fear. I've got to prove that I'm something. I've got to show that I have worth. And it is a deep brokenness in us. And so what Jesus does with this parable, it's interesting. We talk about the, 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 the reason for parables. So Jesus tells parables to try to reveal some of the truth of the kingdom of heaven to us. But in the telling of the parables, there is also a cloaking or a, a shroud put over the truth. So that if you only understand them at face value, you'll actually miss what Jesus is saying. And so the second part of the parable here, Jesus starts in verse 10. And if we listen to this in, 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 and take it at only face value, then we'll miss the reason for the parable. Okay? 
And largely, the, the, the meaning behind the parable is attached to the second part that he tells, and so that's why we have to go into verses 12 through 14. But let's read 10 and 11 here again. Uh, so Jesus says, But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, so if, if, we, if we take this parable at, first, at face value, we just got some advice from Jesus about how to go to parties. Okay? We're just going to tuck in the back of our minds, like, oh, hey, remember, sit at the back, right? Oh, hey, remember, sit far away from the table. Oh, hey, remember, sit next to the bathroom, right? Like, just simply choose your seat better next time, right? That's what the face value of the parable might lead us to conclude. All you need to do to be a humble person is just change the chair you sit in, right? But that misses the whole parable, okay? That misses the heart of the parable. But in the midst of telling the parable, Jesus gives us this, uh, this true and widely applicable statement about the reality of pride and humility. And that is, in verse 11, he says, if you prop yourself up, you will fall. But if you lower yourself down, you'll be lifted. Right? Now, in some ways, our culture and our world resist and work against this reality. And in other ways, our culture and our world agree with and reflect this truth. Okay? Sometimes you see the value of humility, or when you are humble and others around you observe that humility, there is an exaltation that takes place. People go, oh, like you're that kind of a person that actually has a self-awareness that would lead towards humility. And that's an attractive thing, right? So suddenly people might evaluate you as trustworthy, right? Some people might suddenly realize, okay, this person I can handle being around because they're not this arrogant jerk. Right? So in some ways our world affirms this truth because it's a universal reality. It's deep into the wiring of the way things are created. And there are other ways that we reject it. Right? You're soft and you're weak and people are just going to trample over you. Some people might view you as that if you choose the way of humility. And so in our world we have this kind of dichotomy of both things being, of this truth being both affirmed and denied. But the, the parable just simply leads us to see that the wisdom of humility is that it is better to be humble than humiliated, and that in light of God, this is the way that we need to see that our position before him works. That if we elevate ourselves before God, we're going to be humbled. And if we humble ourselves before God, then we will be elevated. James 4, 6 says this very clearly, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, which is also repeated in, in uh, I think, 1 Peter 5, and it's a direct quote from Proverbs 3, 34. So all over Scripture, we see this true statement about how it is that we stand before God. If we seek to stand before God and to build our own platform of worth before Him, then that will crumble. But if we come before God in humility, understanding and realizing I don't, in my own strength, have anything to stand on before you, but I come to you anyway in humility, then we will see that God, in fact, will exalt us. And the reason that this is true is because God himself, in his very nature, is against that which would elevate itself. 
Now, we need to understand, it's not that God's just running around with the furrowed eyebrows waiting for somebody to be proud and then squash them, right? It's that God, by his nature, by his nature, God resists the proud because God wants to draw near to those who are lowly and contrite in heart, those who are less than what he is. The very nature of God is to actually lower himself. From the start, when God decided to communicate to human beings, he was displaying his own humility. I am above this. I am higher than this. I am glorious. I am all-powerful. Nothing compares to me. And I desire to associate myself with my creation. Right? A deistic view of God is not a view that says God is like this. A deistic view of God says God created everything, and then he stood off and he keeps distant. He just made the world to work, and he steps back, and he just watches it work. Right? A true view of God evaluates the reality of human existence and says, okay, not, did, not only did God just create this and spin it into existence and send it away from himself, he created this, he spun it into existence, and he involved himself with it. From the very beginning, God's involvement with human creation reveals the fact that he has lowered himself. And we see this time and time again in the Old Testament scriptures when he chooses a people, he comes to those people, he reveals himself to those people, and what do those people do? They do what all people do. <laughs> they turn to themselves, they run away from him, and they pursue the, their own good. And then what does God do in response to that? He moves toward them, he sends prophets, he sends helpers, he sends redeemers and rescuers. And he calls them by his name, and he pulls them out of captivity, or he rescues them from their sins, and he says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And then he establishes them as his people, and then they begin to walk with him and talk with him, and then they, they, they're given grace, and they're given an empire, or they're given a kingdom, and then what do they do? They turn to themselves. They turn sin, sinful. They turn inward. They turn consumatory on their own arrogance. And what does God do? God moves towards them graciously. He sends more messengers. He's kind and compassionate. He draws them back to himself again and again and again until finally we see the ultimate dealing of God with man is exhibited to us in Jesus Christ. And Philippians 2 is an amazing picture of this. Just verses 5 through 8 say this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He, God, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He just sang these words, the humble king has come to earth from throne on high to lowly birth. The spotless lamb has washed away our fatal sin with saving grace. The man of sorrows crucified for love he bleeds and love he dies. The one forever exalted, the one eternally holy and spotless, the one worthy of all praise, never having weakness, never having lack, never having foolishness or sin, came to be human, 
to take on our flesh and our blood. He lowered himself to the point, verse 8 said, of becoming obedient to death. Right? The invincible became killable. The spotless one took on the reality of our sin. This is the distance to which our God has gone. That is why when we are proud, there's resistance because it is against the nature of God to be proud. And we find ourselves butting up against the solid rock of God's character when we elevate ourselves in pride, when we refuse to humble ourselves. This is the way that pride and humiliation are shown and revealed in our very hearts. And Jesus goes on in this dinner party uh, to help us see this further. So in verse 12, he turns to the ruler among the Pharisees. So he turns, first he observed everybody and their comparison and their desire to find the seat of honor. Then he turns to the guy who made the invite. And let's read these verses 12 through 14. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you are repaid, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so this man is also then instructed in the situation not to invite a particular kind of people, but rather to invite some others. Humility, he's communicating here, will produce a life of friendship and love towards those with whom friendship will bring no benefit to you. He says to the guy, don't create your parties to earn credit. <laughs> don't establish your guest list based on your future hope of other invitations to other dinners. Don't create an environment that is surrounding you that is full of people who have to owe you something. Rather, create for yourself an environment in which you're not going to be expecting repayment. Right? So Jesus isn't saying here, don't have your friends and family over for dinner, right? So we just... What he's saying is step down from the platform of earning credit with people around you. He's saying stop living your life so as to store up for yourself a handful of pending favors to be exacted at a time in the future when you really need them. And then in verse 14, Jesus brings the final judgment into view here as he talks about this wisdom of humility. This judgment coming into view is significant to us, right? Because Jesus has this continual message that there will be a day when we stand before God and who we are is going to be exposed before God. There's going to be that fearful, dreadful day of the Lord that will come and we will be finally and ultimately exposed. We'll be backed up all the way into the garden where our first parents stood exposed, naked, right? 
And at that moment, we'll have the opportunity to put our trust, our hearts and our minds will go toward what, what can I trust to cover my guilt and shame, right? And that very first situation of sin and guilt and shame gives us kind of a precursor as to what we can exper- expect at the future judgment. Because when Adam and Eve stood in their shame and said, oh my gosh, we've got to clothe ourselves, they went to the woods and they got some leaves and they were insufficiently covered. And then God came and approached them and he spoke to them and he called to them. He talked to them about their sin and what it had done. He pronounced curses and judgments on mankind and on the devil. And then it says in Genesis 3 that he clothed them. That at that moment, when they were insufficiently covered with leaves, God covered them with the skin of an animal. It's kind of one of the first glimpses of sacrifice in the scriptures. It points us to a sacrificial system that God would one day establish so that the sins of his people could be erased, which also points us forward even further into the future of the great sacrifice of Jesus himself who would die for all so that their sins could be erased. So at that judgment, then, when we're standing exposed, we will go toward one or the other place. We will say, what have I done that can make myself good enough, that makes me good enough to be here? that makes me be able to endure this judgment and be saved? What have I done? Or we will look towards the skin of an animal that will have to cover us. The sacrifice of another that will clothe us and hide our shame and erase our sin and cover us once and for all. That is the hope that we have in the final judgment. And so when the final judgment comes into view here with this man, Jesus is saying, listen, one day your only hope of surviving judgment will be to receive the benefit of another, to receive the clothing of another. The only way that God will call you just at that moment in time is going to be based on the work of another. It's not going to be because you merited it, because you earned it, It's not going to be based on the repayment that you can bring to God. It's not going to be established by your own goodness. It's going to be because Jesus earned it for you. It's going to be because he made the payment for you in your place. It's going to be established by the righteousness of Jesus. And so this whole story, this whole situation about the banquet has to do with the credit that can be earned before man pointing to the greater story of credit that needs to be earned before God. And Jesus is trying to say to the guy, you don't seek to earn credit because you can't. You can't earn the credit on your own. And when we glimpse the grace of God and realize in humility that we've been clothed by one who gave himself for us, it opens the door to humility towards others as well, where now Jesus says, invite the poor. Invite the cripple. Make the lame and the sick and those who are blind your guests, for then you will be blessed. Do the reverse of what you're prone to do, to seek credit, to earn favor. And rather, give credit and give favor where it's not deserved. Society looks at those people and says they don't deserve a second glance, so Jesus says, I empower you to give them a second glance because I gave you 
that second glance. You will be blessed. You will truly find the kingdom in that scenario. It sounds an awful lot like Matthew 5, 3, which is the opening statement in Jesus' great sermon on the mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus tells a story to rightly illustrate the heart of humility, he craftily paints a picture of God's kingdom and the populace that will inhabit his eternal dwelling. Jesus is showing a parallel here. He's saying God's kingdom is not going to be filled with those who have the power to help themselves. He's going to say God, he says God's kingdom is going to be filled not with those who have their own influence and their own money and who have established for themselves the good life. It won't be the lofty. It won't be the arrogant. It won't be those who think that they are strong. It will be exactly the opposite of how we are prone to build our kingdoms and populate our dinner, dinner tables. It will be the poor. It will be the sick. The blind and lame will be in attendance. At the table of the king will be those who understand that they had nothing to offer to him. It will be those who are humble enough to see that they didn't have what it takes to repay him for his kindness. The kingdom of heaven is full of those who rely wholly and completely on the generous, gracious hand of a humble king. And so then we can ask the question, well, what's the deal then? Do I have to become poor? Or blind or lame to enter God's kingdom? And the answer, of course, is no. Jesus is simply asking you to realize what you already are. You're poor, and you're blind, and you're lame. Right? Because as compared to the one who deserves an invite, Jesus, you indeed are poor. You see, as compared to the one who is fit to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus, you are sick. As compared to the one who has earned the right to sit at that table, you are lame and powerless. Humility is all about seeing the self rightly. Seeing the self rightly. C.J. Mahaney says humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so with the telling of these parables, Jesus is asking us, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself by way of gauging in comparison with others? Do you see yourself in light of the things that you believe you have to offer that other people can't offer? Do you see yourself in light of your goodness? Or do you see yourself with sober judgment in light of who Jesus is? Do you see yourself in regards to the holiness of God as someone who could never attain that holiness? And you see, how you see yourself is going to be reflected in the way that you attend a party. Wide application. The way that you go about your world. 
How you see yourself is going to be reflected in the way you enter a room. How you see yourself is going to be exposed by how you interact with someone that you would see as less than yourself. Or how, how you see somebody who's more than yourself. How you see yourself is going to be revealed in the way that you consider your reputation based on the company that you keep. How you see yourself is laid bare and open before God. He knows, he sees, and he evaluates the heart, not just the action. And so he's asking us, what are, what are, you, what are you standing on? Are you standing on your talents? Are you standing on your pedigree? Are you standing on your achievements? Are you standing on your morality? What are you basing your confidence in? If you're basing confidence in that before men, then you're basing confidence in that before God as well. Who are you prone to be embarrassed by? This question kicked me in the gut. Who are you prone to be embarrassed by and why? Because they reveal that, what about you? When you're greeted in the marketplace and you're around those people and that one greets you, how do you respond? Right? With a stiff arm and an avoidance or an embrace? I don't want them to know that I know why we're seeking to establish something to stand on. Whose audience do you seek? And in whose presence do you melt and quiver? All of these things reveal something about how worthwhile we think we are. And listen, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. Okay? Jesus doesn't tell these stories so that you'll walk around and say, I'm a dog. I'm an idiot. I can never do anything right. I'm so dumb. Right? That's not humility. That's self-loathing. Okay? Which is actually a fruit of pride. A whole other conversation. Right? Humility is clearly understanding who you are in light of God. Simple. Clearly understanding who you are in light of God. And knowing that your worthiness is established in his deeds. Right? When you know that your standing before God is based on the work of Jesus Christ, the need to posture yourself will begin to dissolve. Okay? When you know that you can stand before God naked and exposed for who you truly are and be 100% accepted because of what Jesus did for you, when you know that, then the fear of exposure dissolves. I can't let people know who... Yeah, you can. Everyone can know who you really are. Because they're not your judge. And they're not your justifier. Jesus is. That changes everything. That changes community. That changes relationships. That changes mission. That changes interaction in the world. That changes our secret thoughts. Changes our hearts. Because I'm exposed fully and truly and utterly before the eyes of God. As much as I try to get up here and confess my weakness, right? As much as I repent of my sin to my friends and my wife, as often as I can say, I think I'm crooked in this way, help me, guide me, 
correct me, guard me. As often as I can do that, I can still never fully get to the depths of my heart and expose them to you or any other human. Only God can see that. And guess what? He's the only one who's 100% accepted me with no qualifications at all. Because y'all accept me with major qualifications, just like I accept you with qualifications. Can we be honest? I'm good as long as that doesn't happen, right? I'll sit here and listen as long as he doesn't say or do, right? I mean, we've all got these qualification things. God says, because of Christ, you're all mine. Like, I know it all, and I, I, I bring you totally and completely in. That's the sufficiency of the sacrifice and the clothing that Jesus puts on you. He knows everything. And he totally loves you. It's the road to humility. It really is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that in humility you lowered yourself. Having experienced nothing but pure light you came and invaded our darkness. For all time, eternity past, you enjoyed the perfect fellowship of God and you gladly left that seat and came and ate with sinners and thieves, the wicked, the broken, the wounded, those who would hurt you and eventually kill you. The distance that you came for us is so dramatic it'll take all of our life to perceive it. You left your throne above so glorious and you came to pursue us here. That humility gives us what we cannot earn on our own and it therefore liberates us to be humble and to see ourselves rightly before you. So God, help us not to take this parable and just add some activities to our week and then call ourselves humble. It's not the point. Help us to see the greater humility in God and to have our hearts changed by it so that we can be the kind of people who welcome the poor, the blind, the lame, who sit with the weak, the troubled, and the hurting because we know that we are they and they are we. That we are the sick. We are the wounded. We are the blind and the lame. And you have welcomed us to your table. Change our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.